Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him My endurance compatriots, companions, and comrades, welcome to the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4 406. Yeah, had a bit of a scare or a potential setback in my training right after the last episode dropped. And you could hear it in my voice if you were paying attention that I had a little something going on. And sure enough, I woke up that next day, that Sunday, sick as heck. And I was really looking forward to that long run that day. It was just a plain Jane three-hour and 15-minute surge run that would get me like 21, 22 miles, nothing complicated. I was really looking forward to it. And I woke up with a fever and a headache and like, man, I'm sick, like flu sick. (laughs) And after a few seconds of indecision, you know me, I said, ah, you'll hate yourself if you don't go and try. So I met up with my buddy Tim, who was doing a two-hour run, and we got out. And I could tell I was hurting from the start. So I I called it at two hours. I got a solid 13 miles in. I went home, took a shower, and basically laid in bed the rest of the day. And I was a bit concerned because I had a busy week with a two-day road trip on Tuesday. And I figured, you know, I'd be out on the road, sick in an airplane, you get the visual. And it turned out much better than I thought. Coach had me scheduled for a recovery week anyhow, and there weren't any monster workouts to add to being sick and traveling. And I was able to drug myself up and made the travel and meetings look easy Probably all of those uh, clients I was with now are suffering from this flu. But hey, I got the work done. And most importantly, it didn't turn into anything worse, into something awful. This is a learning moment, a teaching moment. You always run into some blips in your training cycle. And my training cycle has been going so well that I was due. A couple more big weeks would be good for my confidence, but for the most part, the hay is in the barn. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit today. In this episode, I called up our old friend Dave McGilvery, head of DMSE Sports and the race director of the Boston Marathon, and so much more. And I had a simple question to pick his brain about, maybe not so simple question. What does it take to run across the country? my country, the United States of America. And we also had a little chat about that other race that's on everybody's mind this time of year. And then in section one, the hay is in the barn, what to do when you have these late cycle training blips. And in section two, I'm going to continue with my commenting, my criticism in the true sense of the Eckhart Tolle book, The Power of Now. Speaking of the Boston Marathon, they released the bib number assignments, and if you want to track me, I am, got a pencil, 18543. Think about that. As hard as I trade, with my finishing time around, you know, 3.30-ish, 
I am nowhere near the mid-pack of this race anymore. There's 30,000 runners in this race, and only 25,000 of them are qualified. That means close to three-quarters of the pack is in front of me now. You'd have to run my old Boston PR of a 306 just to make it into the first wave now. And it's amazing. When they changed the standards by 10 minutes, people wondered if the runners could keep up. And there's your answer. They certainly can. The entire curve just shifted by 10 minutes, and the race is still oversubscribed. It's amazing. And this will be my 21st running of the race. And I pulled out all the stops for this one. I think I'm going to have a good race. Regardless of what happens, it is and has been an honor to be part of this thing, this slice of local and running history. And on April 15th this year, Patriots Day in Boston, my buddies and I, we've done the work and we've earned the right to play and play we will on with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Late cycle training drama. One of the things you learn to live with late in a hard marathon cycle is drama. Chances are, if you're going to get hurt or sick, it's going to be in the final third or quarter of your training cycle. And that's exactly when it will cause the most drama in your life. And if you follow any of the major marathon training sites where they have a community, you'll start to see the drama level ramp up as you get close to race date. People are positively bugging out of their minds in these discussions. I have a pain in my ankle that won't go away. Should I do my final long run? I've been in bed with the flu for a week. Can I still race? I mean, you can hear the anxiety dripping off the page, so to speak. People are already excited about the event. And by this point, they're making their travel plans. They're thinking about race day stuff like weather and what to wear. And the event has started to email these exciting pre-race notifications and then it happens. Bam! Some unplanned injury or sickness or event that blows up a week or two of training right at the peak of it. Oh, the humanity! I have lived through enough training cycles to give you some advice on this. First, breathe. Relax. Whatever happens, you're going to be okay. You can't change the past. The future is yet to come, so stop making yourself crazy with anxiety over something you can't change or something that hasn't happened yet, okay? Calm? Great. Let's get started. What's your first question? I missed one or two of my peak weeks of training due to injury or illness, including a long run. Should I double up? In the remaining couple weeks to make up for it? No, don't be an idiot. Just do whatever your original plan was. Maybe slightly adjust the cycles a bit to get your cadence in line with the race date. Just pretend the one to two week hit never happened. Move on. If you're late in your training cycle, let's say within six weeks, you've already got most of the fitness earned and re-injuring yourself or overtraining isn't going to help your race. This is not a test you can cram for. Protect what you've already earned and bring it to the race with you. I lost a week or two to injury and or sickness. Should I skip my taper so I can make up for the training? No, you're still being an idiot. The hay is in the barn. Skipping your taper is not going to make you more fit. It's just going to give you dead legs for your race. Let your body recover. Go into your race fresh. My doctor says I broke my anti-tibial redaction tendon, and I'm four weeks out from my race. What do I do? Can I still run the race? Ah, yes. Well, this is a great question. First, remember, 
the doctor is always going to be conservative because they don't want you to hurt yourself, and frankly, they don't care as much about your race as you do. They aren't emotionally or physically invested in it. It's your body. You get to make this call. And whether you show up for the race is really a game day decision. You already paid. You might as well show up. Pick up your stuff. See what happens. Go in with no expectations and be willing to walk away. You've really got nothing to lose. If it's a serious or life-threatening injury or you're not quite sure, it's okay not to run the race. You've got the rest of your life. In the grand scheme of things, you'll get another shot. One thing you can do is call the race director and tell them you can't run, but you'd still love to be involved. See if you can work the finish line, hand out hugs and high fives. That's a great time. The doctor says I have an inflamed crucial trilateral interior pterodactyl. I may be able to run the race, but I can't train and I'm four weeks out. What should I do? Ah, well, this is a very common situation. Most injuries late in training cycles are not acute. They're overuse injuries. The challenge is that you haven't finished your cycle and now you can't train anymore or at the same level. And in these cases, your goal is to maintain the fitness you have. This late in the cycle, the hay is in the barn. Typically, you can't run, but maybe you can bike. Worst case, you can pool run. Pool running isn't going to make you race fit or any fitter, but it can maintain your race fitness for a couple weeks. It can get you to your race. You can also work on your strength and flexibility. Yoga is great, as is any other non-impact flexibility exercise. If you can maintain your fitness and go into your race flexible and strong, you might be surprised at how you perform. And this is also where you can make yourself feel better by buying braces and wraps and those sort of things to support the offending tendons. I mean, a good knee brace or ankle brace can give you some confidence in the race. What about my nutrition? I can't run. What should I do with my nutrition? What should I eat? Well, that's another great question. If you're like me, you count on those five to 10,000 calories burned in each training week to stay race lean. And you, my friend, now must put the brakes on your eating. You're not training as hard. You're probably eating more from stress and you're just not burning as much. So start to watch what you're putting in your face and focus on nutrition-dense, calorie-low foods like fruits, nuts, vegetables, and lean meats. An extra five pounds can really make a difference in whether or not you can hold on or crash out in a race where your fitness is questionable. What about my anxiety? I already had race anxiety, and now I'm wigging out. All right, chill. All worrying is going to do is make you tired. When these waves of anxiety or panic come over you, focus on your breathing. Focus on the now. Be present in the moment. Disengage from those emotions and observe what is happening. This is not you. This is your thinking mind trying to get you riled up. Just sit back. Watch it. It doesn't need to be fixed. Just breathe. Observe. It is what it is. Okay, what can I do on race day to raise the chances of running well with my strained prefrontal peroneal fascia? Ah, excellent question. I have found that going into a race in these situations ends one of two ways. First is the unhappy path where you know in the first 10K that the injury is real and you're not going to be able to race. In this case, you just smile, take a deep breath, and either jog it in or walk it in or walk away. You tried. Don't be a hero. You've got the rest of your life to race. But second, and not uncommon, is the happy path. And I have found going into a race worried about a late cycle injury causes you to run conservatively early. And this means you build strength and confidence as you go and finish strong. And this is how you should approach race day execution. Go out slow and easy and let the race come to you. I hope this helps. And now for today's featured interview. 
Dave, the man, the legend. So uh, you're going to try and shuffle through the marathon in a couple of weeks. Good for you. How many will that be? The idea. Boston, it'll be my 47th Boston, my 156th overall marathon. Yeah, and you keep track of this stuff. I couldn't tell you how many marathons I've run, but it certainly isn't that many. Yeah, well, I keep track of Boston and my marathons and my Ironmans, and that's about it. I don't keep track of anything else. I don't have any logs or any of that stuff, but those things are easy to remember. So I wanted to uh, talk to you because I've been toying with the idea of running across the country, and uh, I don't Mm -hmm. know really even where to start, and I know you've done it a bunch of times, and I've talked to a lot of folks who have done it, probably 10. There's way different stories. There's people who are super organized and have a couple of SUVs and a whole team. And there's people who just decide to start running and push a baby carriage across. Give me the summary, the uh, running across the United States for dummies uh, summary. Mm -hmm. Well, again, I can only talk personally as far as my experience. And probably all the people you spoke to certainly have done it recently or well after I did. So the way I did it and the methodology is probably very different than the way people are doing it today. I didn't have all the toys that exist today. There was no such thing as GPS watches and cellular phones and email and social media and all those kinds of things. There were no power gels and power bars and things of that nature. There was no technical T-shirts and shorts. And it was back when I did it in 1978, it was just down and dirty and just bang it out type mentality. So I had heard about a friend of mine who biked across the country from Method Mass to Method Oregon, and I thought if we can bike across maybe as a runner, I could run across. Kind of an idiotic comparison because biking and running are very different. But I said, no, I really want to give this a try. So I started planning with my AAA maps, and I wrote to all the state police agencies across the country through the states that I had chosen to run through. And, you know, long and short of it all is, is I went out and did it. I had three support crew members following me in a motorhome. And uh, so the way I did it was I ran 10 miles, took a little break, ran another 10, took a break, ran another 10, took a break, and kind of did it that way every day for 80 consecutive days. Generally speaking, if you take out the highs and the lows, I averaged about close to 50 miles a day. And again, going from Method Oregon to Method Mass. And I finished that run on August 29th, 1978, inside Fenway Park, in front of 32,000 people, because I did it for the benefit of the Jimmy Fund. And um, Runner's World said that was the first time somebody had combined running with raising money for cancer research. And it probably was, because nobody was really raising money for many causes back in the 70s through their running. People were running to be competitive, to run, not combining philanthropy with their own personal goals. So, you know, I feel good that maybe that was helping to pioneer that whole phenomenon that exists today. So I did that run. And then 25 years later, I did it again with nine other friends. We relayed across the United States from San Francisco to back to Boston, hooking up in Salt Lake City on the exact same course I ran when I ran solo. And then um, it took us about 22 days to do it. And each one of us ran between 22 and 25 miles a day and finished that run in Fenway Park. And in 1981, I ran up the East Coast of America with wheelchair pioneer Bob Hall. So Bob pushed the wheelchair and I ran next to him about 40, 45 miles a day from Winter Haven, Florida, back to Boston. So, yeah, I've done a couple of these treks across the country or up and down the East Coast. And you've also given advice to or mentored a bunch of folks, too. I know you talked to some of the folks that I've talked to that have run across the states. So you've seen the evolution of it. I think you went down and met Costellic when he finished, right? I did. Uh, not that, when he finished, yeah. but I ran with him through Pennsylvania. I happened to be putting on a race down in the area. And so I drove up to meet him and ran with him that particular day. And Pete and I have been good friends ever since. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's the current record holder. Last time I checked, the... Yeah, yeah, he's the current record holder. Because I can't remember the guy's name uh, who did it before him, who had the record for like 20 years. Frank Giannino. Yeah, Frank. I talked to Frank. And again, he yeah, was... Frank yeah, Frank owns so. a running store down in New York, Middletown, New York. Yeah. Yep. 
so when these folks come to you, now there's, like you said, there's multiple routes, right? You can go, you've done Seattle, you've done San Francisco. What are sort of the, the typical routes or the categories of routes? What's the highest well, level summary of that? Objectives. I mean, some people are looking to break the Guinness Book of Records for the fastest transcon run. Some have other objectives where they want to start in a particular location and finish in a particular location, and then you kind of draw as straight a line as you can. I mean, with me, I ran more the northern route. I was California, Nevada, Utah, Colorado, Nebraska, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New York, and Mass. Other people may start down in the L.A. area and take a more southern route and work their way further north towards either Atlantic City or New York City, not necessarily Boston. I think most try to take as short a route as they can. <laughs> yeah. I think my route yeah. was one of the longer ones only because I wanted to connect two cities, Method to Method. So I ended up paying the price and probably running another two, three, four hundred miles further than I had to to do a, a bona fide transcontinental run. So I have a motto in life, my game, my rules. So it's, right. it's your run. You do whatever you want. There's no set course. I mean, half the roads maybe I ran 40 years ago don't even exist today type thing. You have to take all secondary roads, obviously. You can't be running up on the highway. So, and then it depends on the time of year. I mean, there's certain sections of Colorado where you might want to run through and the roads could be closed due to winter storms and you can't get through because of blizzards or whatever. And then there's always the heat of the desert, the 120, 130 degrees when I was running through. So I'd have to get up at two in the morning and and try to stop my run that day at like three in the morning so I can beat the heat, get the majority of my run done before it gets to be too oppressive. So um, so everyone's goals and objectives are a little different. I talked to one guy who I think was only doing uh, six days a week. He was taking Saturdays off uh-huh. and it was going longer. You know, he's probably four months, right? So you said you average like 50 miles a day. That's a lot. Yeah, it was, you know, and that got- especially back then. I mean, today, I'm not saying it's, you know, 50 is 50 no matter when you do it, but just what's available to you today versus what was available to me back then in terms of nutrition and dietary supplements in terms of just technology and all kinds of different things is very different. Just the footwear and the clothing and, you know, all of it, you know, it's so different today than it was back then. So I think I'm not suggesting that it's easier today than it was then, but maybe it is because just what's available today, you know, that. I think didn't have he, yeah, available back then. Yeah, I think you got more information now is even probably the biggest thing, yeah, right? There's just that. so much available. Yeah, just all of it. Just all of it. I mean, like I said, I was using AAA maps. So when I left the motorhome, <laughs> I'd look at the map and I'd go, okay, I'm going to do 10 miles. But when I get to Route 20, I got to take a right. Don't forget that. Don't go straight. You know, that kind of stuff. And I'd take off and the motorhome would sit for about an hour and then it'd take off to catch me and I could have taken a wrong turn because there was no GPS watches or anything like that. So there were times when I did go off course and ran further than I needed to because I didn't know where the heck I was. I was all alone. And today that probably wouldn't happen. You'd have your smartphone, your GPS watch, your Garmin, your this, your other thing. You'd taken the shortest possible route. So how long did it, um, how many days did it take you when you did it? Well, I planned it for 80 and it took me 80. I did that by design because I wanted oh, yeah, to run into Fenway Park on a certain day. And so right. when I had charted it, I thought the distance was around 3,200 miles. And by the time I got to Utah, I did some recalculations and I realized I was short and I was about 200 miles short, which for me was like four days. And I'm like, oh my God, right. I got to pick it up. <laughs> And so, because I wanted to only average 43, 45 miles a day. And then when I realized that I was short in terms of my calculations, I said, I'm, I'm not going to get there on time unless I start adding more miles per day. So I did. But then I got so far ahead of myself that by the time I entered Massachusetts, I was like four days ahead of schedule. So I had to back off because I was scheduled to finish in Medford and then on to Fenway on August 29th. And I could have probably finished three or four days earlier, but so I, I backed down from like 50 miles a day to like 38 to the last few days were probably 26, 30 miles because I had got ahead of myself. Yeah, I think uh, you're always going to have that. Even with the new technology, you're always going to have that off, be off yeah. by a little bit. 
you know, and especially yeah. when you're talking about that kind of distance, uh, right. half a percent of error is a couple a lot of miles, miles, right? So, yeah, yeah so, exactly. exactly. So you're always going to have yeah. that. So you did it in 80 days. I think Pete did it in, what, 30-something was his record? I think it was for 40-something, maybe I'm uh, 42 yeah. or something. Yeah, Frank did it in, yeah, I forget. It's somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah I keep confusing um, that with the uh, Appalachian Trail. He was doing around 70 a day, and, you know, I was doing 50. Yep. And so you started in, like, what, late April, early May, mid-May in uh, Oregon no, to show up June. Yeah, June. so you started late. Yeah. You started late. June, yeah, yeah I had you the got whole the full heat yeah. of summer. Yeah. Yeah, well, one of the Real- reasons is I started late is that one of my support crew members was a teacher, and he wasn't able to get out of school until June. So right. I held off until June to start it. And I was fine with that. I mean, it was just like a summer gig, <laughs> you know, June to August. Yeah. And, but it was hot. I mean, it was really, really hot for most of the run. Yeah. And a lot of the folks I talk to, they'll start in like an April time frame because they yeah. can't start too early because you get some really nasty weather coming across mm-hmm. the continental divide if you start too early. It's still winter time. Right. So yeah. there's this balance between the super hot weather in the middle yeah. of the country and the exactly. super uh, winter weather on the continental right. divide. Yeah, and if you do that, Boston, I was running the marathon then in Boston, and I I didn't want to miss it, so I I knew I wouldn't do it before the Boston marathon. So sure. if I was going to start early, and then I did, it would be late April or something. Yeah, and then if you spread it out, you could probably get down to twenty, thirty miles a day and do an April to to September yeah. sort of run, right? Yeah. I just didn't want to be out there that long. Three months is enough. And I was running it. I mean, I was pretty fit. I mean, one thing that I pride myself in is that I bet of everyone that did it pace-wise, I probably ran probably as fast, if not faster per mile when I was out on the road than most have done. I was running 715. And most of these guys were running 10s or 11s. They're out there much longer. So I started at 6.30 in the morning, and I was done by 3.30 or 4.30, and these guys were out there till 7, 8 at night. Right. There's that balance of having enough time to actually get some food and some sleep and recover right. to be able to get up exactly. and do it the next day. Yeah, exactly. that, that's interesting. Yeah. So the other thing I'm wondering about is, like, you talked about the cost of the time, right, taking three months out of your life, but there's also the cost of doing it, right? And I could see this. Yeah. If you were to self-fund a campaign costing a hundred grand or something, right? These days, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. I mean, if you could whatever the vehicle you wanted or needed, if it's a motorhome, an RV, or a van, or I don't know, whatever one chose, if you could get that donated as a sponsorship right. in kind sponsorship. So then, and then you got to get yourself out to the West Coast or back from the West, whatever. So there right. might be some flights involved. And then you got to pay for gas, and then you pay for food. And truly speaking, there's not a lot of other expense. You're not doing a whole heck. You're not out shopping and going to restaurants every day. You know, you're not really spending a lot of money. So as much as one might think it costs a lot of money, it really doesn't. It really doesn't unless you just elevate it to a whole different level where you're hiring people and you have all the technology involved and you're doing crazy things. I mean, I just wanted to get across the country. Other people stop and they go in hotel rooms and they go give speaking gigs that night and, and drag the thing out. Well, that's where it becomes expensive, I suppose. But if you're just going to wake up in a motorhome, drive to where you're going to stop the, the day before, go run, get back in the motorhome, cook your meal inside the motorhome, pull the motorhome over somewhere, sleep, wake up and do it all over again. How much does that really cost? Yeah, you're a bit of a vagabond. You're a vagabond. I mean, that's what I was. I mean, I don't know what people, whether they go in luxury style these days, but I certainly didn't. That's why I said mine was down and dirty. Yeah, I mean, the the ultimate would be to do it as a uh, travel channel show like Anthony Bourdain, right? You could uh, do the, uh, the episodes and have the whole crew following you. But, uh, well, and then there's have to some figure that out. Who, who do it solo, like Pete just ran from Alaska to Florida or something, pushing a, a baby jogger, if you will, with all his gear in it and a right, you know, a tent or whatever. And so you look at doing it that way, and your cost is like really come down. I mean, I personally would never do it that way. I I don't need to be alone that much. 
on my own that I'm going to run 50, 60 miles a day pushing a jogger and pulling over the side of the road and setting up a tent. So everyone has their own way of doing things. God bless them. Yeah, there's some British guy I talked to who's going around the world. He's probably still out there. He was in Russia last probably. time I tar- checked. He's yeah. pushing some yeah. sort of thing around. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, mine, you All know, right. when people say, oh, you went across the country, you're crazy. But it wasn't really crazy. I mean, I, I planned it out. I had the right people. I did it as quickly as I could, raised some money for charity, and moved on. <laughs> that being said, it was also a turning point for you in, in the path that oh, you chose was. for your life, right? It certainly, it certainly was. Yeah, well, I mean, I took a three-month leave of absence from a job, and when I finished, my boss wanted me to come back right away, and I said I need a few days to recover. And that I got a termination letter. He fired me, and I'm like, okay, best thing that ever happened to me. And <laughs> that's when I just decided to change my career path and get involved into the health and fitness running scene, and opened up a running store, and then started putting on events to promote the store, and realized I like putting on events more than shoes on people's feet and developed my whole event management business. And I've been doing this for almost 40 years now and put on events all over the world and from Boston Marathon to the Olympic Games to the Goodwill Games to the World Triathlon Championship to, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And if I hadn't run across the country, my sense is that I might not have followed this path. It, that run into Fenway, when I finished inside Fenway, I mean, that was life-changing for sure. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. So that's a great story. Mm-hmm. So that's good stuff. I got to think about this some more. I'm not doing this this year. I'm thinking maybe a few years out, maybe when I'm retired, yeah. right? Yeah. So I'm casual, casual about this, but it's certainly yeah. something that I think I could do. And you think people say this is crazy? You know, there's been basically everything I've done in the last 20 years. Pete, somebody has told me I was crazy, right? So, so it's all uh-huh. it's all relative. Well, it's not a function of being. I mean, they're being facetious. I mean, yes and no, but it's just that it's something that's so daunting to them that they can't fathom how somebody, A, would choose to do something like this voluntarily. And then once they made the commitment, could actually physically get out and do it. And for me, it's always been, you got to earn the right to do these things. You just don't do them on a barroom bet. So if you're going to say you're going to do seven marathons in seven days on seven continents, or you say you're going to run across the country, or you say you're going to do the Ironman triathlon, or you say you're going to run the Boston Marathon, you're going to do the work. And I really think the human body has far greater powers of endurance and adaptability than most people give it credit for. So the first thing is wanting to do it. The second thing is making the commitment to do it. The third thing is earning the right to do it, meaning doing the work. And then for the most part, if you follow those three things, anything's possible. Anything's possible. And when someone says, I can't run a marathon, and my response to them is, yeah, you're right, because you obviously don't want to because you've already <laughs> decided that you can't do it. So it's done, right? But if you say, I want to run a marathon, then you have to convince yourself that you can run the marathon, and that's when you make the commitment and you do the work. So. Yep, yep. No, I'm with you. It's speaking of work, I'm feeling good this year, so... I'm good. looking forward to April. I'm, uh, I'm yeah. sick today, but I've had a really good training cycle. Yeah. So we'll see you out there. All right. At Boston on the 15th. Hey, so um, anything new this year that I'd, we need to know about at Boston? No, I mean, this has been somewhat quiet coming off of last year's monsoon and <laughs> and all of that. I mean, what last year did was it exposed maybe some minor weaknesses areas we probably needed to beef up a little bit. So we're focused on that kind of thing, whether it be medical sweep buses for people dropping out or whether it be shelters for people in case there's severe conditions again and things like that. But there's nothing major that is changing for, for this year, kind of business as usual, which is refreshing instead of like in 2014 after the bombings, it was like starting all over again. It was just madness to try to figure this all out. And now there is a new normal and it's been six years. so. We've adjusted and people are now used to this new normal in terms of the heightened level of security and just all the new things that are kind of now in place. People have gotten used to them and understand and the element of surprise is gone and we're starting to settle in, if you will. So it's a good feeling and hopefully yeah, and knock on wood, and everything goes well and we, we have a good day weather-wise. Yeah, you got to dial us up some good weather this year. It's been a while. No, I know. I know. So, I uh, yeah. <laughs> 
talking to the, the folks around the race, it just uh, the quality of the field just keeps getting better too. I'm sure you were wondering what would happen when you lowered standards uh, a couple times, you know. Um, yeah. But people are stepping up, so it just goes to show well, they you. Yeah, and that's the phenomenon of, of, you know, doing what we do in terms of just in qualifying times. Um, it just raises the bar, but people, as you said, step up, and they say, okay, I have to work harder to achieve this new goal, you know, and, and people do, which is great for the yep. sport. You know, it gives them an incentive yep. to work even a little harder and become a even a more fit or a faster athlete. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's only one race on the planet that does that. You know, it's this one, the Holy Grail. I wouldn't want every race to say you got to qualify for us, but just to have that one is a really good opportunity for people to really set their sights on something very special, and they rise to the occasion. So, exciting. All right. Well, thank you for uh, all that you do for the sport and the community. Thank you. And I appreciate your... uh, your sage advice, all right? All right, Chris. You take care. All right. Cheers. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Homily number two on being. A continued treatise on Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now. We left off last time with the concept of watching or observing the thinker. By abstracting this way, you can disassociate your core being with your thinking mind. Because the thinking mind is a bit of a trickster that's always working to disturb your peace. And the key concept here is that when you identify with the mind, i.e. believing that that thinking mind is who you are, you empower it or give it energy and give energy to its thinking machinations. When you observe the thinking mind, you draw energy away from it, or at least you don't give it energy. You starve it of its ability to make you unhappy and anxious. Because you, the underlying you, is only in the now, whereas the thinking mind is always in the future or the past. And this creates what the teacher calls an anxiety gap, between the now and the past or the future. And the only way to close that gap is to be in the now. This focus on the future or the past in the thinking mind causes some people to strive for more things, more power, more stuff, thinking that there is some happy place in the future that once you have enough achievements and stuff, everything will be okay. On the other side, it causes other people to associate their self-worth with problems and events in the past. You know these kind of people. They're the sort of woe-is-me people that live in this state and associate with this state. And both of these conditions, they keep you in fear or keep you unhappy. Striving for a future state where everything is perfect, that's a fool's game. It's a bottomless pit. It's a hole you can't fill. And the real irony is that you're unhappy in the now to get to that state. And if you just focus on the now, that future state would actually be better. And living in the past is a bad investment as well. Why would you spend your time living in something that makes you unhappy? Why invest your ego in that? It can't be changed. All you have is now. Why not learn how to be in the now? To summarize which is always dangerous with philosophical and spiritual works, all negativity, unease, anxiety, tension, stress, worry are caused by too much focusing on the future and not focusing on the present. And guilt, resentment, regret, etc. are caused by too much past and likewise not being in the present. So I will quote directly now, There is no salvation in time, You cannot be free in the future. Presence is the key to freedom. You can only be free now. Which brings us to our next conclusion, which may seem a logical outgrowth. All problems are illusions of the mind. The solution, if this was a world where solutions existed, is to be in the now. Once you can truly be in the now, you will start to realize and be filled with the pure joy of just being. 
And you see this in people in our world. You meet them. This is that presence, that stillness, and that peace that you see and feel in people who have a good handle on this, who practice being in the now. And when you're in the now, you no longer are dependent on the future for your emotional state. And this frees you from being attached to results. It frees you to do what is right. It frees you to choose your own path. Failure and success no longer have any power over you or your state of being. So I know what you're thinking at this point. I'm thinking the same thing. If I'm about to be run over by a speeding train, or if I'm about to be fired, or if I'm about to lose a loved one, how is sitting and smiling like the Buddha going to do me any good whatsoever? Don't I have to do something? Don't I have to take action? Now, the teacher is not suggesting sitting like a vegetable through life and avoiding the day-to-day functioning of normalcy. One thing you will find is that many decisions happen in the now without you needing to think about them. That speeding train, for instance, do you really need to think about that? No, you will move out of the way. You won't think about it. And the other decisions become more true to yourself as you are more grounded in the now. You stop making decisions and taking actions based on false premises or anxiety or fear about some future state or some false ego-related emotional baggage from the past, which are bad things to base decisions on or actions on. And I have personally found that quieting my thinking mind and being more present in, for example, business interactions or personal interactions allows me to hear what's going on and to have more empathy, which makes for better and more effective action and decisions. And the truth is, we're not really talking about living totally in the now. We're talking about trying to be more present. Most of us will never be able to live fully in the now. But we can try to spend more time in the now, which will have an outsized effect on the quality of our lives. Even a little bit of now will give you some leverage. Most of us including yours truly, exist in a constant state of unease, a sort of low-level soup of anxiety. And the more time you spend, the more time you focus on the future or the past, the higher that level of background noise is. That is basic human unease or unhappiness. By focusing on the now, the present You effectively turn down the volume of that constant background noise, and it gives you a solid sense of a rooted self that's immune to the buffeting winds of fate or fortune. And that is a great foundation for a, if not happy, happier life. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, you probably have not run 3,000 plus miles across the country to the end of the Run Run Live podcast episode 4-406, but maybe you will someday. One thing I would encourage you to do is to look at Dave's resume. He has accomplished so much in his life, but that's not what's special about Dave. What's special is that most of his accomplishments are focused on helping others. And he lives this this life of service to the greater good. And even with all he's done, he's extremely approachable and he's humble. I just think he's a great role model for all of us. I've had a great couple of weeks since our last episode. I did get that quick fever, flu, cold, whatever it was, but I got through it in a week. Had a bit of an anxiety there when I bailed on that long run. As you may remember, I did most of my long runs on the treadmill in February and early March, and I was hitting my paces, but in the back of my mind, you know how that thinking mind is, I was always cognizant of the fact that the treadmill is not the road, and until I road tested some of those paces, I was going to be tentative. So last week was a rest week when I was sick, but coach gave me a nice long tempo run for the Saturday, 
And of course, the weather didn't cooperate. It's New England. We had 20 mile an hour gusting, swirling winds. And I was almost ready to drive into work and knock it out on the treadmill again, especially coming off that cold. I didn't know what to expect. But I stuck my head outside and it wasn't so bad. So I suited up and I hit the workout. And the workout was to warm up for 20 minutes and then run 50, 50 minutes at faster than race pace. Uh, and the out and back route, my home out and back route for these type of runs, starts out as a rolling downhill. So the first half of this, the out, is a rolling downhill. And this means that when you make the turnaround, the second half of the run is a rolling uphill, which in theory is a great workout, but in practice kind of sucks as you climb those hills at the end of the tempo session. And it turned out that the wind was a tailwind on the way out and a headwind on the way back. And I don't really look at real-time splits when I'm running, when I'm doing these workouts. I try to run them by feel. The most I'll do is I'll, I'll look at the mile splits. And when I hit that tempo, I'll try to ease into what I think feels like, in this case, uh, race pace minus 10 seconds. And I'll get that mile feedback to see where I am and adjust to it. And I was a bit horrified in this workout when the first mile split was a 730, which is about 20 seconds a mile too fast. And I tried to ease off a bit, and the second split came in at 730 again. So downhill with the wind a bit, but I was sort of terrified that I was going to crash and burn. So going into the turnaround, I really tried to ease up and manage the 745. And the challenge here is now, you know, I'm turning back into the wind and up the hill, and I've just, you know, hit these really fast paces. So in previous training cycles, this is where my legs would have blown up. They would have gone on me. But Saturday, I was able to hold that pace. I was able to hold a 739, then a 749, then a 758 up the hill into a stiff headwind without my legs failing at all. And when I made the turn back to the house, at the end, I turned back with the tailwind for the last half mile, I averaged a 725. So there's a number of positives there. I was able to go out too fast and recover without failing. I was able to do the hard work up the hill and into the wind, and my legs felt great. And I was able to close it hard. Those are all good signs. And I followed up this week on Tuesday with a similar step-up run on the same route without the wind with 30 minutes at 7.50 and then closed it with 30 minutes at 7.30, which again, those are amazing paces for me at my age. And last night, I knocked out a set of 200-meter hill repeats, 20 of them, at a sub-7 pace, and it felt easy. How is this possible? Am I just lucky or gifted to be able to pull off this kind of speed, to be able to pull this kind of speed out of my butt at the ripe old age of 56 going on 57? Uh, No. I mean, yeah, of course, there's some underlying DNA involved, but this is the cumulative result of 20 years of consistent effort over the long run and six months of focused effort on this cycle. And what I have done differently this cycle, what have I done to get these great results? Well, near as I can figure, it comes down to the following. First, of course, is consistency. And I do the work with consistent focus and effort over time. And this isn't much different from previous cycles, but it's the baseline. Second is nutrition. I have dropped close to 20 pounds over the last six months. I usually shed 10 pounds in a marathon cycle, And the last few cycles, I haven't really focused on going that extra 10 pounds, but the combination of less weight and cleaner eating early in the cycle allowed me to have higher quality training and faster paces. Third thing is the stretching and core. Another difference in this cycle is an early focus on daily flexibility. And this allowed me to train harder and probably kept the injuries at bay. And finally, sleep as well. I've had good sleep. I haven't been traveling as much, and my commute isn't bad, and I've been getting that full 
seven to nine hours of sleep every night. And I'm sure that contributes to my ability to execute. So it turns out the secrets to success are not actually secrets. You just have to do it, right? Which is the hardest thing. It's easy to say these things. It's another thing to actually do them. But if you do, I guarantee you'll see the results. Next time we talk will be the weekend before the Boston Marathon. I've got one more long run, and I'm into my taper. Remember, my number is 18543. If you want to steal it, you need to be able to run a sub-330 marathon, or else I'll kick your ass. Your etymology, word of the week, is the word compass. And this is a combination of two Latin words, come, meaning with, and passus, meaning pace or steps. So following your compass means bringing together your paces. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. Ooh, that's kind of small, that print right there. Let's turn that up a little bit. A little bit of silence for the background noise. And we begin. Uh, this was a great workout, man. Um, you know, you're in a good spot, and you're right. This is the best training cycle we've had in 10 years. And um, your weight is, is, is as low as it's ever been. Um, your body fat is as low as it's ever been. You know, I saw that picture of you in a weight room the other day. You look fantastic. Um, you know, we just need not to let anything stupid happen now between now and race day. You have a good run tomorrow. We shut it down. Um, we recover. We get we get the fueling dialed in during recovery. Start taking care of the legs during recovery. Let everything rebuild. And I don't give a flying fuck what the weather is. You can go out and nail this race. And I think what you really need to do this year is say, okay, this is a race I want to run and hit that plan. Mentally, you've been everywhere that you need to be to execute the race that you want to execute as long as your head's not getting in your way and you're not talking out and doing things because something doesn't look right that day. I don't give a fuck if it's snowing. I don't care if the wind is 80 miles an hour. I don't care if it's 100 freaking degrees. You have got to say to yourself, no matter what, I'm executing my plan and execute that plan because we're not going to waste this shape. And if you execute the plan, you're going to have the race that you want to have. And that's what we need to do. Uh, let me know if you need anything. Hope you have a good run tomorrow. Have a good day.